Matthew 26, verses 1 through 50. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Well, Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for the opportunity to hand him over. Rise. We're skipping now to verse 46. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer has arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. So we're in this series looking at the the 12 closest friends of Jesus. We're not looking at every one of them, but we're looking at a number of them. Last week we looked at John, the beloved disciple, and we considered in the way in which that we are like that beloved disciple. All disciples are like that beloved disciple. Today, it's quite an abrupt change. We are going to talk about Judas Iscariot. Ironically, almost, his name means praise, Judas. Also in Hebrew, Judah name means praise or maybe praise God or some people even say it means praise Yahweh more specifically his father's name was Simon and by the way Iscariot 
is most likely where he or his father was from. It means man of Keroah, which is a town in Judah. His father's name was Simon. This is kind of a silly thing to point out, but he was one of the twelve. This betrayer was one of the, the twelve, one of the twelve closest disciples of Jesus. He was. He's named in every one of the lists. He was a money keeper. So those bankers we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, right? He became known among the disciples as a miser and a thief. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The word betray can be defined in a number of different fashions, but really simply put, to be unfaithful is to betray. More specifically, the biblical word gets at this idea that somebody is using their power or their influence or their status to rob another person of theirs, particularly where there is a trust broken to do so. Where there is a vulnerability that's been exploited. I think that actually sums up the idea of betrayal quite well. For those of you who have experienced that in your lives, you've trusted. You've become vulnerable in trusting, and somebody has broken that trust. Matter of fact, maybe even using the trust you had of them as leverage to exploit you. Taking your power away from you. However, in Jesus' case, it's really interesting. Because, well, certainly he was betrayed. In Jesus' case, it was known that he was going to be betrayed. He allowed it. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I willfully lay it down. I think Jesus needs to have some stronger boundaries. Right? What in the world kind of responsibility is that to just know somebody's going to betray you and just let them do it? I think sometimes the way people teach having proper boundaries isn't always biblically oriented, to be quite honest with you. Mm -hmm. If your boundaries have no risk involved in them whatsoever, they're probably not very biblically oriented boundaries. But it also tells us that just because Jesus could do something does not mean he will. Like he says, I don't, I lay my life down, nobody takes it from me, but we also know he's betrayed. He goes along with betrayal. He could have stopped it. He could have gone a different way. Just because he could, though, doesn't mean he does. He was concerned with his father's will in all of this. Which also tells us that just because God could do something doesn't mean God will do something. He was betrayed for, again, 30 pieces of silver. It's not a lot of money. A few hundred bucks today's currency. Some people would, add, would, would argue that it could be a couple thousand. But we're talking about a person's life. And it's probably more like a couple of hundred bucks. 
As a matter of fact, Exodus 21.32 tells us that 30 pieces of silver is the price you have to pay if you accidentally kill somebody's slave. Which wasn't supposed to be much. An expendable person. A few hundred bucks. Jesus is betrayed. Judas sells Jesus, you could say, for 30 pieces of silver. And he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. That was a kiss. I hear some smacking over here going on. That's not a betrayed kiss. That's a really loving, motherly kiss right there. It was a kiss, but it was so much more than a kiss. It's kind of crazy, but the word for kiss comes from one of the words in Greek for love. Phileo. Fish. (laughs) Phileo. (laughs) I always say that. I can't stop myself. Phileo is brotherly love. Brotherly love. And so it's a kiss of brotherly love. Or maybe, actually, Kat and I were driving up the road the other day, and I'm like, you know, that doesn't quite get it right. I mean, like, like brotherly love sounds okay, but it almost sounds cliche-ish, right? Because we have, like, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And so, like, oh, brotherly love. That just sounds, like, all kind of nice and cool and everything. But it's like, maybe we should insert something more like sibling love. Like, if you have a sibling, I have a sibling. Like, I have a, a special kind of love that I could say that I experienced with friends, but it's something that I grew up with with my sister. I grew up loving my sister with that kind of what Phileo is trying to get at. And so this notion of a brotherly love kiss is what Jesus was betrayed by, by Judas. Jesus was exploited by love. It's an interesting question to ask of, were they so unfamiliar with Jesus, the people trying to kill him, that they needed somebody to point him out with a kiss to know who they were supposed to kill? Apparently so. But I think the narrative is actually teaching us that Judas is not just betraying Jesus. He's betraying Jesus because Jesus has made himself vulnerable because of his love for Judas. And Judas exploited that love. Judas used the appearance of love. And the vulnerability of Jesus due to his true love. To rob Jesus of his life for a pathetic sum of money. And Jesus goes along with it. And if he wouldn't have, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be here right now. If Jesus' love would have stopped as soon as Judas' love stopped, we wouldn't be here right now. If Jesus would have decided to take up arms and go the way of many other people that have a great set of values until they're pushed far enough and would have decided along with Peter to start chopping off ears. I think he was going for probably more than ears, Peter was. And if you don't know the account, then I suggest you go read it. It's in Matthew 26. We wouldn't be here if that's what Jesus would have done. Judas' love 
betrayed Jesus, but it did not end Jesus' love. So what in the world was going on? What was, what was going wrong with Judas? What was he thinking? When he put these people, what was he thinking? Was it greed? Because that's not a very big return to get 20 pieces of silver. Was it greed? Maybe. I think many people have probably been killed for a lot less. Could be. Some people suggest that he was upset with Jesus because Jesus wasn't being the kind of Messiah that he wanted him to be, him being Judas. Judas had his expectations of the Messiah, and Jesus wasn't living up to them, and so he's upset. He's frustrated. He doesn't seem to want to compromise on any of this kingdom of God vision stuff. Some would even go so far as to suggest that maybe Judas is trying to force Jesus' hand to act. That he didn't really think Jesus would go through with this, I'm going to die and be killed thing that he's been talking about. That if, if only he betrayed him, handed him over to be killed, then Jesus would finally get on with it. With, with Judas's plans. We're told that Judas felt remorse after handing Jesus over. But he felt bad. Apparently it didn't fill that void inside of him that he wanted filled. Didn't fulfill the desires of his own heart. We're told that he tried returning the 30 pieces of silver and that he later tragically took his own life. So many questions about Judas. Again, what was he thinking? What was it that he didn't get? What did he not understand about Jesus that led him to do this? Questions also, this one I don't find to be very helpful, but this is a question that I hear asked all the time concerning Ju Judas. Was he ever a true believer? I think that's a crazy, unhelpful question because even if we could think we could possibly know, what good would that do to know that? Because we can't know anybody else's where their faith is at. If we, you know, even if we were to say, well, you know what? He never had any real faith or he did and he lost. Like, it doesn't do us any good because we shouldn't be making those kind of judgments about people anyway. So let's not, even, let's not even go there. But if we're going to go there at all, we should say, yeah, he was. Just as much as any of the rest of them were. Maybe a better question would just be, how did he get to the, po the point? How did he get to that point? Was it like a strong start? Was he like, yeah, I'm following Jesus, I'm doing this thing, yeah, I'm following Jesus, yeah, I got this thing nailed, and like those, those pinnacle high mountaintop experiences of like worship and learning and studying under Jesus and figuring things out, and maybe like, oh my goodness, Jesus is going to trust me with the money bags, and I get to take care of stuff, and it's like going really well, and then slowly it just kind of fades and fades and fades, slowly a little compromise here, a little temptation there, a little giving in there, and slowly things start snowballing. 
to get to him, to get him to the point of being willing to betray Jesus? I mean, he did follow Jesus for three years, you know? I'm sure he gave up a lot. I wonder if he ever really understood Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God. I mean, I wonder sometimes if we really understand the vision of Jesus concerning the kingdom of God. It doesn't seem as, as, Judas, as Judas did. It doesn't seem like he did. Did he love money more than Jesus? At the time, anyway. Until <laughs> he actually handed Jesus over, and then all of a sudden he seemed to want Jesus back and the money to go away again. You've never made a decision like that, though, have you? Right? Once we have what we want, all of a sudden we realize we don't want what we have so much. And we want what we used to have. Yeah. Was Judas led by fear? Because you know that fear is actually the opposite of faith. Not, not doubt. Not lots of questions. Fear. Fear is the opposite of faith. So was he led by fear? Was Judas? If so, what was he afraid of? Maybe he was afraid of death. Maybe he was afraid of death. Maybe he, in hearing all this talk about disciples not being greater than their teachers and sharing the same fate as their teachers, and then Jesus talking himself about dying, he's like, wait a second, I don't think I want to die. I can tell you myself, when I was getting ready to have my thumb worked on, <laughs> I didn't want to die. It'd be weird to want to die. I get that some people are so much struggling at certain points in their lives that they want to die, and that's a different thing. But was he afraid of death? Or maybe he was afraid of insignificance. That his life was going to become meaningless. Because you know in the minds of some, it's better to be infamous, infamous than insignificant. You guys have seen the three amigos, right? <laughs> the line where, the, where they're like, I think it's El Guapo. <laughs> And they don't understand the word infamous. And they think they're in a movie. And so they've decided that this El Guapo is so famous, he's infamous. <laughs> but I'll tell you, this is a real fear that people have. Especially in a world that tells you you can be everything. We put superstars on pedestals and we pay attention to everything that celebrities want to have to say and think their voice value is more valued than the average person on the streets, which is nuts. People get sucked into this idea that their life, because it's not in lights, is insignificant. That, brothers and sisters, is a lie. Your life is very significant. It matters a tremendous amount. So with so many of these questions, none of the gospel writers just offer straightforward answers to what's going on in the head of Judas. But 
taking the narrative of each gospel, we see all of those things at play. Fear. We see fear in Judas. We see greed. We see a disgruntled attitude. We see a fear of death. We see a fear of insignificance. We see a failure to understand Jesus and his vision. We see all of those things as playing into his willingness to betray Jesus. In the text that I read for us, there was a story of a woman. A woman who had a jar of expensive perfume. And including the details that the other gospel writers add, we know that this is Mary, mother of, sister of Martha, Lazarus' sister. Some people even go so far as to think possibly, because of how Luke tells this story, and this is a very interesting point, I'm not going to dwell on it much, but that, but that Mary also was a prostitute, the prostitute that was in the Pharisee's house, who carries out a similar action to what happens to Jesus on this day, which for some people, people don't like that sometimes because they've got a picture of Mary in their heads that is not a prostitute. So whether she is or is not, I don't really, I think it does matter a bit, but we're not going to get to the bottom of that here. But nonetheless, we have this juxtaposition of people's responses to Jesus talking about how he is going to die. These are two potential responses of people thinking that the one they've been following are gonna, is going to die. And what does Mary do? What was her response to Jesus telling of his death? It was to honor him, to spare no expense, to take her expensive, very expensive 300 denarii, 300 days wages, 300 days wages. That makes a little hair stand up in the back of my neck. Maybe I like money too much. I don't know. 300 days wages. Almost a year's, that probably is if you're taking weekends off, right? Wages. That's the value of this pint jar, alabaster jar of pure nard. She takes it and she breaks it. And she anoints Jesus' body with it. Well, she still had a chance. She still had a chance. Jesus was with her. She wasn't going to not take that chance because Jesus just said again that he's going to die and she's not going to wait around to find out whether or not he was going to be available for her to do this at a different time. She takes her 300 days wages and in one moment breaks it open and pours it on Jesus. That was her response to what Jesus had to say about his dying because she loved him so much. She believed. She trusted. And she honored. She sacrificed. Oh, this action upset Judas. In Matthew's gospel, it says that it's all the disciples. 
And there's certainly a sense in which it probably was all the disciples that weren't very happy with what just happened. But we're also told in the Gospel of John that it was Judas in particular that was very upset. Oh my goodness, what did you just do? What, I can't believe this lady just wasted 300 days wages of breaking a jar and dumping it over Jesus' head. Are you kidding me? This money, this could have been sold. The money could have been given to the poor. That sounds like a really great argument, right? He sounds sincere in a sense, but he's not. Jesus responds to the disciples and Judas, and he says, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. At first glance, it sounds like Jesus is dismissing the needs of the poor. That's not what he's doing at all. As a matter of fact, I've heard people trying to teach, try and teach it like that, and they're not paying attention to what is going on where Jesus is quoting from. What he's actually doing is pointing out the fact that the sudden objection to this seemingly wasted money is not about the needs of the poor, but about the greed of the objector. If you read just a little bit more from Deuteronomy 15, you will, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Jesus' point, you will always have the poor among you, is that you have always had the poor among you, and now you want to object? Whatever. You clearly don't really care about the poor. As usually happens, at the hand of the greedy, the poor are being used for reasons of personal gain, exploited more. Your concern for them is really a concern for yourself. Your motivation is not true. If it were, you would be consistent in love, displayed in constant care of them. This is situational objection, an example of exploitation of the poor for your sake, to suit your needs. This just happens today all the time. It drives me crazy. Jesus defends Mary and Mary's actions of honoring Jesus are to be forever remembered. I'll tell you, I'm having a hard time resisting going in one direction with this, but I am going to resist it. I'll just say this. There's something going on in this narrative that is all about women and how they were viewed in this culture, how they were not honored, and how what she is doing is more honorable than what the men are doing. It's a shame when that happens in the church today. You women are amazing and powerful. And sometimes, many times, you display a faith that's beyond anything I can imagine. Don't let anybody tell you anything differently. Us guys are the ones that seem to have it all messed up all the time. 
All right, enough of that rabbit trail. Between Jesus' death talk about how he's going to die and his honoring of Mary, Judas is moved to act. He's moved from his place. He went to the chief priests and elders who we have already been told were plotting to kill Jesus and asked them, well, he still had the chance. Well, Jesus was still worth something. He wasn't dead yet. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? And they counted out 30 pieces of silver, and he agreed. What a shocking juxtaposition. What radically different responses. Well, Mary still has the chance. She responds to Jesus' imminent death by taking the opportunity to sacrifice what was likely her most valuable possession. Probably her retirement. All in one fell swoop. Mary honored Jesus and his love with an act of love of her own done in faith and trust. Unselfishly. She knew, especially if this was that prostitute woman that Luke talks about. She knew she was forgiven much. Because that's exactly where Jesus goes with that Pharisee. She knew she was forgiven much. And she loves much. She loved Jesus with everything that she had. Judas, on the other hand, well, he still had a chance responds to Jesus' foretelling of his imminent death by taking the opportunity to exploit Jesus for personal gain. Jesus' love, gentleness, and meekness and his servanthood that he'd been teaching about was to Jesus a means of exploitation, not something that was to be received and reciprocated. Though Judas needed to be forgiven much, he was not because he did not pursue it. Thus, he also did not love much. Do you know how much you need to be and if you ask are forgiven? You've heard it said, if you want to make the fruit good, you must first make the tree good. A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. The origins of change for people are within. If that's true, that how we change is starting by something in us. We can call it our heart. We can call it our soul. We can call it our mind. We should probably call it all three of those things. If that's true, then whatever is to be said about Judas, it is clear that he did not address what was within. He never went there. Ultimately, Judas' eternal internal state came out. Seems as though he was able to fake it for about a good three years, which is pretty good compared to some. He's going through the motions. He was following Jesus in a sense. He was able to do it for that three-year time frame approximately. Ultimately, 
what was in him came out of him. It is those origins of our actions, not actions themselves, that we have to address. And we must address them. We must address, if we want to change, if we want to grow, if we want to be transformed, we have to deal with what goes on inside of us. If we try to deal only with actions, we will just simply go crazy, or give up, or both. If we ever expect Jesus' ways to become our ways, we must allow Jesus' inner character to become our inner character. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we must become introspective. And so give me a few minutes to journey in this introspection way, okay? It's important to notice that actions are need to be paid attention to, right? Because that's where we find out maybe that there's something wrong. Like we find out, you know what, it's not really right for me to holler and scream at my wife all the time. Okay, well I'll stop hollering and screaming at my wife. But without going and asking why do I holler and scream at my wife, or think it's just her problem, I'm never going to get anywhere. I might be able to muzzle myself for a day or a week or even a month, but sooner or later, it's going to come out. i got to deal with what's going on inside. So I start by noticing the action. I recognize them as out of step with Jesus' way. And the next thing, after we recognize it, I think we do is communicate our desire to change. It's also called repentance. <laughs> to turn. To say, I don't want to do it that way anymore. I want to do it this way instead. There's a better way. This doesn't line up with Jesus. I want it to line up with Jesus. I want my behaviors to change. So I'm going to repent. I want to change. And importantly, for the times that you've failed, that you've noticed that you've known, accept forgiveness. Receive it. Guilt, guilt does not empower inner transformation. It doesn't. You ever just get yourself all like, quagmired up in guilt. It just does it's, oh my goodness, it's icky. It really is. It just bogs you down. You can't move anymore. Guilt does not empower inner transformation. Sober recognition of wrong does, but not guilt. Guilt actually impedes transformation. Judas is a clear example of that. Had he only recognized Jesus' compassion and mercy, if he would have only recognized that, maybe he would have had a different response to his betrayal of Jesus. Not then a different response than betraying Jesus. I'm saying a different response to having betrayed Jesus, which for some is a challenging piece of theology and thought that Judas maybe could have taken a different path. Could, G could Judas have been forgiven? I'd say absolutely. Of course. Look at the rest of the disciples. They weren't a whole lot better. Look at Paul, the apostle. He's killing Christians, persecuting the church. Guilt isn't a very good motivator. Instead of guilt, embrace forgiveness. Rest in forgiveness. Know you are a forgiven people. Then we can start on talking about what's really going on inside of us. Why do we do what we do? Asking ourselves, with the Holy Spirit as our guide, 
really simple questions about our behaviors. Why did I do what I did? Why? And I don't holler at cat, okay? <laughs> I just want to throw that out there. Oh, I, I, I have probably, but that's not really my style. I got other things I got to deal with, um, <laughs> work on. But if I'm hollering at cat, I got to ask myself, why? What's going on? Why do I holler at cat? Why am I getting so angry? Why am I getting so frustrated? Is it pride? We're going to name four things and talk about one of them. Is it pride? Because that can really make that happen, right? Pride is, whoa, a bad, nasty thing. Oh, I'm better than you. Oh, I'm really, I am. Pathetic people, right? Like, ooh, that's kind of icky to say. Or jealousy or covetedness. Oh, I want what somebody else has, and I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get it. Or closely related, greed. Well, I got a lot of stuff, and I just want to get some more, and I don't really care what I have to do to step on somebody else to get more of what it is that I want. Or lastly, fear. Fear. I think that's the number one thing that we have to deal with. I really think it is. Almost all of our sinful behaviors are fear-based. We're afraid of what we what we don't have or how people might view us. We're afraid of somebody rejecting us so we don't even want to give anybody a chance. We're afraid that maybe who we really are will be found out and people won't want to care about us anymore. There's a lot of things that we can be afraid of. So ask yourself that. Ask yourself that. Are you afraid? Next time you find yourself doing something you don't want to do, don't just try and stop doing it, but ask yourself why you're doing what it is that you're doing. And maybe ask the question of, what am I afraid of in that? What am I afraid of? If I get too angry with my kids, maybe I'm afraid that they'll be not such great kids and everybody else will look down on me because I raised kids that weren't so great. And maybe ask other questions along the lines of, where did I learn that? Why do I think that's true? Where did that come from? Was that, am I just doing that because that's what's done to me? Is there a different way, maybe, to consider carrying these things out? Simply ask, what does Jesus have to say? What needs to heal? What truth needs to be formed in you? Let me ask you this question. Maybe think of a situation where you have done something that you know isn't right. And ask yourself, was it a, a fear slash trust problem? Or maybe ask it this way, if you would have trusted God, if you would have really known that he was there, if you would have really trusted that he loves you, 
that he does have your best interests in mind as well as those around you, would it have made a difference in what you did? Every time I go through this process, it, for me, and everybody's a little bit different, it comes back to that issue. It comes back to me recognizing I really just was not trusting God. Instead of being trusting and knowing my father was faithful, I was instead fearful. Fearful sometimes simply of being insignificant, of having a life that didn't matter, or of not having enough for tomorrow. But when we do things based on fear, we end up looking like Judas. And we should be desiring to look like Jesus, but maybe that is displayed in looking at Mary, who was not led by fear because she threw her security in the worldly ways out the window. Or actually... Over Jesus' head. She wasn't led by fear. She was led by faith. She was led by love. A way that she learned from her Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that you would help us to be people that aren't led by fear, that are led by faith, that are led by trust, that we would... We're trying to look like you, Jesus, but we see some pretty awesome stuff going on in Mary. So let our faith and let our lives shine and look more like hers than they look like Judas, for sure. And Father, help us to be a people that embrace the forgiveness that we have in you and truly embrace that forgiveness. Father, help us to recognize that there is a little bit of Judas in all of us. Maybe a lot. And I don't know what each person here needs exactly, but you do, Jesus. To move them from that place of acting out of fear to acting out of faith and trust and hope. Lord Jesus, we say that we believe that you are the one that has overcome death itself. And that we need not fear even death. And if we need not fear death, there is nothing in this world to fear. So just, just grant us that. Grant us that faith to trust you. Amen.